Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Welcome to the podcast. This is Father Mike. Father John, Father Mike here in Rome. Um, wishing you a happy Lent. We have 10 days left uh, here before Easter week begins, and we have a very special edition today. That's right. So we have uh, a number of people in my uh, sitting room right here. Sinit Seleski and Megan Lyons, laugh track, silent laugh yeah, track yeah. girls on the right. And then we have two experts, medical experts here, our good friend Andrea Polito, and of course the one and only Father Christopher Vincent Lebsock, most high priest of the one true church. And, Helena uh, Montana. Helena Montana's fine, fine priest, who's also a medical doctor, as you might have known from his last appearance. I forget, what were we talking about? I don't even know. He doesn't have a microphone right now, so he's just nodding here. I remember us. Shout out from Montana. I don't remember. What did we talk about? Anima, Anima Technica, Technica Vacua. That's right. That's right. So it's good sharing to have... Sharing a microphone today. We're so sharing a lot of microphones. There's going to be a lot of swinging. So we're, we're very, very happy to have them. We're going to hand this thing over um, here in a few minutes to them. But uh, we have to start with some banter, as yeah. you know. So one of the things that I uh, want to begin with, this is a uh, very depressing topic we're about to get into, but a very important one. Um, but... Father Christopher Lebsock told me recently that um, studies have shown that um, single men, men who are not married, live the shortest. Married men live longer, and it's the opposite for women. Did I get that right? So unmarried women live longer than uh, married women. Unmarried women live longer because they're not married? Is it, like, causally connected? Are guys hard to live with? There's so much stress involved in marriage and living with men. That's true. And they have they have children and everything. Is yeah. that part of it? And I, I think, uh, but mostly just guys seem to kill them sooner. <laughs> that seems <laughs> yeah. to be kind of part of it. Yeah. And then the other side of it is uh, we're, in, we're in trouble, gentlemen, because uh, yeah, I men was who don't say, marry well, die quicker, which is not surprising. Well, women generally live longer than men on average anyway, right? So like nuns, nuns would be like the longest... Uh, they'd have like the best longevity, I'd presume, something like that. And priests would probably have the worst. Yeah, the nuns. <laughs> Here we go. I wish we were drinking whiskey right now, but it's morning, so we're drinking I was coffee. Over so there, we're all I was over there. I was over there in Africa. You remember, I went to Africa for Christmas one That's time. That's right. And I went to this um, ceremony for the jubilee of the sisters. I don't know if I've told this story, but um, we there was like a se- big celebration. The whole town comes. There's thousands of people there, and you gather together in the field. The bishops there, and then they celebrate uh, the profession of the new sisters, and then the jubilees, so like the anniversaries, periodic anniversaries of the other sisters. So they announce ten the, sis- the sisters who have been ten years professed, and the sister, each one by name is called. She would dance out into the center of the like uh, field, and then she would like bow. It was kind of a presentation. Everybody's cheering and everything. There's music playing. And then she would dance up to the bishop and then uh, receive a blessing. And it was really cool, you know. And they do this, you know, one by one. It takes hours for these things. But I remember 10 years, and they come and dance and a lot of energy. And then 25 years, and uh, the, the sisters are a little bit slower, but they're still dancing, you know. 35 years, they're still dancing. 
We got to one sister, 75 years professional. She was over 100 years old. That's crazy. And after these sisters who had come up like with walkers and canes and everything, and they're still, <laughs> they're still trying to dance and everything, this one sister, over 100 years old, She's just jamming. She's like grooving, moving all over the place and dancing, dancing. And it was like a, a riot. I mean, everybody is just cheering like crazy. It was so fun. That is fantastic. Well, you have the um, Scandinavian longevity, so it'll probably be Justin Bieber, and you'll be dancing out there at your you know, oh, yeah. 75th priestly anniversary. There are certain basic hygiene things that men uh, just kind of have to learn in life. And, um, you know, I've had a couple revelations lately. For example, you see that orange towel in the, uh, the other room there? Well, I learned there's a distinction. Only It only took me 32 years to know this, but there's a distinction between hand towels and dry, what do you call them? Dry towels? Dish towels. Dish towels. So what this I guess what I'm saying I'm is that... I'm sick all the time because I'm <laughs> drinking from your, the, your the little coffee So cups. I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, my, your morning coffee doesn't have to taste like my face anymore. Oh. And it's all because I have two different colored to towels. Thank you that. Yeah, it's amazing. So this is the inherited wisdom of, uh, you know, of uh, millennium that women have been kind of handing on to men. That's and really We disgusting. have to kind of keep talking about these things and kind of figure this stuff out on ourselves. We'd be like cavemen, basically. If you've got any more of that listener land, <laughs> please send it to Father John. I learned that you don't dry jeans. Did you know that? Don't put this on me, you know. Yeah, right. no, that's I true. Learned that I just morning. found that out this morning. That's why they're up at like And I'm mid, feeling like my, right my jeans now. are a little bit tight. Yeah, they're, well, that could be for other reasons. I'm not going to dry them anymore. <laughs> Too much though. gelato. Actually, Father Mike doesn't even like gelato. This is This is sign of deep disorder in his soul, but he is a professed savory. He's not, he's not sweet. Pretzels. Peanuts. Peanuts. I'm trying to think of anything. I mean, <laughs> I, was like, I'm th- I got my mind on dessert. As long as it's not tiramisu. I'm to think of Except for strawberry shortcake. That is your weakness. Strawberry shortcake. Strawberry shortcake. He just, the guy never eats dessert, no, and then like just moody. one day he turned into this ravenous wolf and just, Ooh, the yeah. shortcake came out. So, we know now. I, do, I know think it's the fresh fruit. Yeah. I think that's about it. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> and we're done to the banter. The uh, We don't intend to do this, but Sorry. you know, sometimes we got to just awkward. catch up a little I mean, bit. Yeah, we have people in the room right now. We're not used to that. So. Yeah, I, feel I, I could watch Megan was falling asleep. I was like, okay, we're done talking about hygiene things and your preferences and desserts. So, so transitioning to a, yeah, uh, very, a very difficult topic. but very important topic. And again, we're going to... Um, we're going to be um, the dumb guys, which we are, at least I am, on this topic. I don't know anything about uh, it. I'm not, yeah, so my questions are not me faking and trying to be, I don't know. I, these are just legitimately, I don't know anything. Um, I know several things about the medical world that I've learned from you, but this is a family show, so we'll, uh, we'll pass on to that and stay into the topic tonight. The, uh, so the first questions uh, that we have are going to be, um, this topic is uh, physician-assisted suicide, which is, again, one of the most difficult um, situations that we're facing, both in the medical world and you two having been in medical professions, but then also with the um, situation just as Catholics, so Catholics in the medical world. So that's kind of the, the situation. And so I think uh, what, I, what I'm looking for here as just uh, someone who doesn't really know anything about the situation is kind of catch me up to speed on uh, what is the situation um, a bit, and then we'll kind of move into kind of what what exactly is it, what is, what's going on, what are the, the techniques, and, and then give us, uh, maybe we'll kind of close it off with a, um, with a sense of kind of what is the Catholic response to this and why, why is it that? So maybe start with the, the state of things, and I'm going to slide this over to Andrea. 
Well, it's a joy to be here with Andrea. Agreed. Uh, and to speak into this issue. Uh, before we speak into this issue, Father Rapp's dislike of sweet foods. There's a couple ways to interpret this. A couple ways to interpret this. First, uh, he was left uh, abandoned as a little child, and so his senses never developed. Or he was loved so much that he has incredibly mature tastes that are beyond sweet foods, only into the savory. Except for, it probably tends more toward undeveloped, but then the like of strawberry shortcake, because I'm guessing there was some like little redheaded girl in first grade who showed him love, <laughs> and he finally is like, I can sense love now. Can it be both? Can it be both? Because I've got, I mean, some things come to mind. First of all, my parents, Dick and Nancy Rapp, are like saints, and they have loved me well. Uh, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of love. And, um, yeah, I don't need any more sweetness than my parents. What do you think? That, but I, I do remember a time that they left me at Snow Mountain Ranch when I was a little kid, okay? <laughs> they left me at Snow Mountain Ranch, and they drove home, <laughs> or they drove uh, far enough before they realized that I wasn't there. I feel like anyone who's in a family of more than three has been left somewhere yeah, at some point. Yeah, everybody's left somewhere. I've been left many places. And everybody loves dessert. So my other idea is I worked at Wendy's, and it's like a great memory and a great love in my <laughs> mind. She's, red, she's a redhead. But she's like also like a cartoon advertising oh. character, so it's really not. Wendy. I don't know. Sorry to distract from the <laughs> physician-assisted suicide. That's okay. It's a little bit more of an exciting topic. Yeah, Rap, you have great parents, so we'll just, we'll go with your explanation. I would like to just say beforehand, um, I know you guys all know that Doctor Father Christopher Vincent Lebsock is a medical doctor. I am a pediatric nurse back in Colorado and um, work predominantly with brain tumor and hospice patients, which is why this is such a hot topic for me. So I just wanted to throw that out there so you actually believe that I knew what I was talking about. So Andrea, to begin, uh, we want to define some terms, but before we define terms, I want to make a disclaimer. Suicide is a touchy topic. Uh, we're talking about physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. Uh, but suicide is a touchy topic. We want to, okay, with all of the mental stresses, the physical stresses, these things affect moral action, including the moral act of taking a life, uh, uh, especially the person involved, the person who's suffering, who wants their life to end. Uh, so we want to make sure we are not placing a judgment on the person. And we're not making eternal decrees about where their souls are after they die. What we are saying is moral acts define who we are. And we are saying, uh, we know this from Revelation, well, we will be judged based on our acts. We have the potential to act united to Christ and act out of love. And that is, uh, that's a participation in heaven right here on earth. We also have the potential to cut off that relationship by rejecting God's sovereignty, uh, by rejecting the dignity of human persons. And we'll get into this more later toward the end. So this act is a, it's a grave act.
and that's why we need to address it. Uh, but again, we are not judging the, the states of souls of people who have taken their lives in this way. Chris, I, I just want to say I think that's a really good uh, place to start with because um, for the sensitivity around the topic, it could be really, there's a lot of emotion and it could be um, conveyed otherwise. So I just want to reiterate that I think that's that's the right uh, approach to begin this. But again, in our culture, it seems like there's, uh, sometimes we equate dealing with difficult issues with the inability to kind of be reasonable and to really think through them. So that what you're about to speak on is is not in any way personal or emotional. It's just we're able to apply reason and, and to understand these things for the sake of, of human flourishing. So, Thank you for the affirmation. <laughs> so <clears throat> quick practicals of um, the state of where we are right now in the U.S., I guess, with, um, with physician-assisted suicide. For those of you in Colorado, you know that we thankfully just shot down the law there um, that was attempting to pass it, uh, the legalization of it in both the Senate and the House. Um, unfortunately, my wonderful home state of California and your wonderful home state of Montana are two <laughs> of the states that it is legal. Um, Oregon obviously being the first, and I believe Vermont. Does that sound right? Yes, I think that's right. I know the state of Washington is involved. Oh, yeah, I think you're right, and Washington. So basically what it's saying is in those states alone right now, um, there are basically people with terminal diagnoses, So, and we're, we're speaking in kind of hospice terms right now, of people who are diagnosed with a terminal diagnosis terminal diagnosis, six months or less to live, are given the opportunity to pursue physician-assisted suicide. Um, what, what that means is they can go to their primary care doctor, their specialist, um, who whatever kind of circumstances is, and request that they are assisted in ending their life <coughs> with without allowing the kind of natural disease process or whatever is going on to happen. So um, what they have to do is they actually have to um, submit, they have to request it verbally, and then they have to submit two requests in writing. Um, and they have to be, I believe the way the law was written in Colorado, um, they have to be a, a few weeks apart, um, these requests. And then they have to have a third party who is going to say, this person knows what they're requesting and they know that that this they understand that this is a grave decision that they're ending their life um, and then they are given the means to do that and they can go home and kill themselves so that's kind of the the way it yeah so sorry to um interrupt you there but the so my question is when we say physician assisted suicide the physician is giving them the content that they then inject to commit suicide yeah so let's define terms what is physician assisted suicide this is the physician through some sort of prescription for a lethal dose of a medication usually is, oral oral medication yeah uh, is assisting the patient to commit suicide themselves. Uh, this is, uh, I think, law and everywhere in the US uh, that they cannot be, this can't be done through IV administration. Right. 
And it isn't the, the big controversy in Colorado was that all of the other states that have legalized this so far have it written in the law that the person requesting the to be given the freedom to do this has to administer it themselves. In Colorado, they left that out. So the big worry in Colorado was that um, the, it wasn't it wasn't written in such a way that, um, you know, you are taking care of your aging mother or grandmother and you see them suffering and you decide that, you know, you're going it, to it's it kind of opens up the door for coercion in in that your grandma's the one who has to request it. But you could actually put it in her hand or put it in a cup or put it in her mouth even um, legally and not be not be prosecuted for that. But that's only in Colorado. Was that the case? It wasn't like that in the other states. Are there specific diagnoses that are required for a doctor to do this? Or can you say, I don't feel well often? I think it has to be, it has to be a designated terminal diagnosis. Yeah. So we're talking that's, yeah, that's in the, the books. Let's talk about the reality here. Uh, first, euthanasia. We need to define euthanasia. Euthanasia is the giving of this lethal dose by a doctor, by a physician's assistant, by a nurse, by someone else uh, who's, who's doing the killing, not the patient. Uh, all right. Mm-hmm. Let's be frank about the reality. Uh, as if it was clean to talk about a physician helping a patient die. Uh, the legal way of describing these things uh, is it's not that clean. It's not actually that clean in practice. Uh, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, right, administering uh, into an IV line, this is ubiquitous. It's in every Catholic hospital. It's in every secular hospital. We can say we ban this in Catholic hospitals. It's not banned in Catholic hospitals. It's under the radar euthanasia throughout the United States. That's the truth. And I think that that is like a really, yeah, I feel like that you could go on about kind of end of life issues um, and kind of the controversy of what what is too much, what is not enough in terms of hospice care, what is, you know, too much too many pain meds are we euthanizing you know there's just like there's a lot of kind of i feel like you could do a whole nother podcast on on that kind of thing but i agree with you it is it's it the the kind of attitude i and what i think is foundationally under all of this is that we live in a world without christ and we live in a world where suffering is bad and needs to be ended and so we're going to do that in whatever way we can and i think Something that makes this issue particularly um, appealing to people, or this kind of legislation particularly appealing, is um, the f- the freedom that's assumed in suicide. Right? This isn't someone who's made a judgment about whether or not I should live. It's me, and I've decided that I don't want to. And uh, and so I think that appeals to people. I think it's a very confused appeal, but um, that sort of absolute freedom over my life, including whether or not I'm alive, um, seems to be, well, I, I guess, in in my mind, or, or from my perspective, 
why people are more interested in this than, say, in euthanasia. No? Yeah. What do you think? We should probably hand the mics back to the uh, the uh, docs here. Because <laughs> I... Uh, go ahead. Do you want to take that? Or? Yeah, so, the, so freedom. The patient wants to be free. Uh, what we're taught in our secular med school bioethics classes is like this this gradation of moral principles and principle number one is patient autonomy the patient is totally free and you are there to serve the patient to do whatever the patient wants uh, and if you're not willing to do that you're seen as a problem uh, and in fact the med schools are probably going to select against such students entering medicine they want physicians who will provide everything, abortion, contraception, euthanasia. Yeah. That's. And I think that we, I, I would say the same for nursing. I was lucky enough to go to a Catholic school, so obviously we, we kind of touched on these issues in a different way. But with that being said, um, everything is what the patient says it is. Everything is what the patient desires. And, and we are, as medical professionals, you know, you kind of go into this thinking that you're there to help people and you're there to kind of provide it for these people. But you are, <laughs> I like, feel like I'm dumbing down the profession by saying this, but I'm, I'm just as much like a waitress who needs to give good service as I am like a nurse providing the right care for that patient. It isn't necessarily, you know, I know that this is right and I know that this is what the patient needs, but I, I also need to give them exactly what they want in the way that they want it and when they want it. Um, and the, the, I think the fear for me, um, is that the only thing protecting me from not having to do this right now is the law because everything else is, it is, you know, the nurse that I work with, Aaron, we talk all the time. Our, our entire job is basically providing medical care and being the best enablers out there because our patients tell us what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And they're looking for our advice, but it, but it also, like you said, um, is, you know, this freedom is the, this right to die. You know, that's the movement. That's the slogan of we have, you know, if you have the right for life, right to life, if you have the, you know, you want, we have the right to die. And it's a, it's a, it's presented as a mercy. It's presented as something good and a gift that you're, you know, what a gift you can give to someone to give them a death without suffering or to help them, you know, kind of in this process in such a way. So it is, it's very twisted um, and present, and it, it, it leaves, I think, like Father Lebsack was saying, it leaves the, the hands of the medical profession tied in a sense. Like you don't necessarily have the right to refuse that. Yeah, there are two kinds of freedom that, that we'll address here today. One that's presented by the, by the medical field is this freedom of indifference. I am indifferent to any outside influence. I'm totally free to choose whatever. I'm free from moral norms. I'm free from the church and her buzzkill laws. I'm free from my own emotions, emotions of people around me. I'm free from, the, from medical rules that used to be in place. I'm free from the Hippocratic Oath and what wisdom maybe was there from ancient philosophy. I'm free to just choose whatever I want. Is that true freedom though? Because uh, that freedom tries to divorce us from our human nature. It says, 
I'm a soul trapped in this body and I'm trying to get away from this body. Whatever my body's telling me, I want to be free from that versus a freedom that says we are human persons, a body-soul composite that are free to act in accord with human nature. Uh, I'm not free to do a lot of things to myself. I'll hurt myself doing that. I am free to love in accord with what human love is meant to be. I am free to love other persons because I see them as worthy of love, right? This is a freedom for, a freedom for excellence, a freedom for loving in accord with how reality actually works. And in the end, this is, the, this is what we believe will actually make us happy, loving in accord with how the world works. But this freedom of, freedom of indifference tries to reject nature and say, I'm going to choose what makes me happy. But as we always see, nature, nature will reject that. In the end, there will be increased unhappiness. It might seem happy right now, uh, but nature doesn't go away. Uh, it will reject this, this mode of freedom. Yeah. I think of uh, John Paul II, and so much of his work in his pontificate was about um, addressing the anthropological foundations to all this stuff, because a lot of the battles take place on these kind of... Um, very kind of spec- specific moral uh, ground, and it really is the, the the deep fundamental crisis is is the question of anthropology, which is what does it mean to be a human person? What does that what does that mean? What is human freedom? Uh, what is the relationship of the good? Uh, what is the relationship of the body and the soul? This is the the spiritual crisis that's I think beneath all of this, and it, it's like the bottom is just kind of falling out of our civilization in that sense, and so. I think that's right on. I want to shift it back to Andrea for a second. I have a question for you, actually for both of you, but um, as a priest, uh, rarely do we get brought into this conversation. Um, It's usually just um, the family is making the decisions, and they're just a lot of times blindly trusting either the the medical advice that they're receiving or the, uh, the desires of that family member, whoever it might be. So very rarely do... I remember only several times in the last five years of getting a phone call when they were making a decision. And I have one specific memory of getting having a nurse friend who's not in this room uh, chew me out for screwing up the uh, advice I gave them. So uh, it's certainly, the, the, the question is twofold, which is if this is a Catholic family listening to this and they are in a place where it's, where it's not, decisions haven't been made, what's the role of the priest? And then, of course, um, how does the church... How can the church respond to this, given the priest, unless you have a medical degree, isn't really going to be in a place where he can really offer specific practical advice, though he certainly can morally? So that's my question for you, too. Yeah, so happiness, happiness can be supported by medicine, supported by health, physical health, or helping someone die a beautiful death. Uh, but medicine can't give you happiness. The person who comes in has their own life, their own values, Medicine is helping them. Uh, medicine is good when it, act, when it helps nature. Uh, and it's not so good when it's going around nature or trying to stop nature. So the priest is there to know what human nature is, know what our final end is, which is God, know what's going to help them get there, which are the sacraments, uh, and supporting them with faith, hope, uh, and love, uh, 
but also to protect them from what medicine might try to do to stop that process of a natural death. I think what I would say is that um, for someone, if you're speaking directly to someone coming to a priest about this person I know or that person wants to pursue physician-assisted suicide or you, you know, were putting someone on hospice and were worried, all of that kind of thing, I think one of the things to keep in mind uh, when you're having these conversations is that these people are in the most stress that they've ever been in their life and they're not going to be able to really process a ton. They're not going to hear everything that you say and they're not going to understand these like broad concepts. And so it's a matter of, of being present um, and kind of bringing it back to the concrete is what I would say. Um, and, and kind of bringing it back to, you know, the the way that I approach um, these conversations, which I've unfortunately had m- many um, in recent weeks, is is n- never is not really kind of speaking directly to them um, in terms of you know this is wrong, you know that you shouldn't do this. This isn't what the church teaches. This isn't what you know what what we're, we're meant for. Um, is you know tell me why, tell me why you feel this way. Tell me why you want to move to California to pursue this. Um, and, and the answers are always really sad, um, and mostly have to do with the fear of death and the fear of suffering and the fear of being a burden, um, which I feel like as a priest, those things bring it down to you. Like you're good at that, like that, you know, like in terms of suffering and talking about redemptive suffering and talking about the gift it is to serve others, um, the gift it is for family members to care for people in these moments. I mean, that, that is like a very privileged thing to be a part of is someone's death. And like Father Lebsock said, you can, I mean, death can be something so profoundly beautiful. Um, and, and medicine, the medical field can really help with that. I mean, that's my whole life and it's such a gift to be a part of. But I think that what I think to remember is that you're not dealing with rational people when they're coming to you with these questions, um, which is why I think that these legislations are so terrifying because these people cannot think like logically or, you know, these buzzwords of informed consent. No one can give informed consent to end their life when they've just been given a death sentence. It's not possible. Um, I don't care how much faith you have or how practical you are or how reasonable you are. Um, there's, there's nothing like hearing that and, and trying to make an, an informed decision. So I think that as priests, um, being a support and, and also being honest, you know, in terms of this is wrong and we need to talk about why, and let's talk about why you want to do this and kind of g- pointing them towards the resources in order to kind of, um, help them in, in this situation. But, uh, I think that, I've, I've seen a lot of doctors walk into rooms and give so much information, but their sentence started with, um, I'm really sorry, but your child or your family member has a terminal diagnosis. And then it's, it's done. Like they don't hear anything else. And so you really have to, I think, recognize the kind of state of the person that you're talking to. That would be my most practical advice, I guess, for someone in your position. Yeah, and Andrea is a specialist uh, in her profession. She's a specialist because a patient comes into the medical sphere and there's pain, okay? There's pain, and we can treat the pain with meds. But then there's, when that pain is received into a human person and we're aware of it, it takes on an emotional value. 
It takes on suffering, and that pain enters into whatever else we were carrying, our questions about the meaning of life and our relationships with people and all of this. And Andrea is the kind of nurse uh, I love hearing her stories about caring for patients. She's not just pushing the drugs and checking her card at the end of the day. She's loving her patients. She's getting into their lives, understanding what's going on, facilitating relationships, and forgiveness where that needs to happen. Uh, this is a huge task of the priest uh, and anyone listening uh, who has a family member who's on their deathbed. Get people there who need to talk. Make reconciliation where it needs to happen with other people and with God. Beautiful. Beautiful advice. Well, um, we are really grateful to have you guys here. Unfortunately, we're about out of time. So um, I want to give, if you have any final things you want to say, um, you know, uh, we really appreciate it. And, and just your final thoughts, and then we'll move to uh, some shout-outs at the end, and then we'll wrap it up. My final thoughts would be to again, follow the, some words from John Paul II, St. John Paul II. He was so helpful to us uh, in explaining who the human person is and how Jesus Christ shows us what it means to be human. And John Paul did this in his own death. At a certain point, he allowed a natural process to take his life. And it was a beautiful witness to the world, uh, despite his Parkinson's and all of the suffering he carried. He allowed that suffering to have meaning, to have redemptive value, to unite that suffering with Jesus Christ and then give it this potency to make the person holy, to make family members or people you're praying for holy. Uh, so that was, that was a great help from John Paul II. Uh, he points out in his encyclical Salvifici Dolores uh, on the meaning of human suffering, uh, the example of Christ. God doesn't come in, doesn't take on human flesh, and take suffering away. But God does conquer death. Now it's after death. We don't just live forever here on earth. This conquering of death is after death, and we have hope in this uh, as Christians. It's hard on this side of death because death is scary. Uh, but we do have hope. Jesus Christ has given us hope in his resurrection. Uh, and through his suffering, through his death, he gives us access to eternal life. And John 3.16 is the, the quote that he, that he emphasizes in the early part of this encyclical. Uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only son uh, that we would not perish, but would have eternal life. This perishing, we've got to get more creative than this act of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide that undermines a loving relationship between a physician and a patient or a nurse and a patient. We need to focus on loving persons and helping them get to their true end, which is eternal life. Um, I would say, I, I think the, the last point I would make is that I think that this is, on a very practical level, this is coming. This is the next big thing. This is something that every state um, is, is eventually probably going to try and pass. And I think, you know, what can we do? We can be involved in all of that kind of stuff and fight it as much as we can. But I also think that we need to um, to recognize, as Father Lepsock was saying, that uh, we have a responsibility as Catholics to witness, to be a witness to Christian suffering um, and to be a witness to, to loving 
um, and caring for those who are suffering, um, whether they're in our family or not. And, um, and, and to also kind of recognize the, the depth of mercy that these people need because we are, we are not dealing with bad people trying to do bad things. We are dealing with people who are in their most vulnerable and terrified state um, and they need us to love them and they need us to help them in that. Um, and so really kind of sh moving away from the condemnation of this and recognizing um, how, how important it is to really kind of engage them where they are and to recognize how, how vulnerable they are. Um, and I think that would be my last point. Yeah, thank you. I think sometimes we can get confused between um, the church taking a strong stance against bad legislation. That's bad for society and for people. And then um, that being perceived as the church going after the people. But I think you, uh, you've just expressed it very beautifully, our, our need to, to love people and to suffer well ourselves and then also help witness to uh, meaningful suffering and, um, and just the meaning of life and how, how beautiful and dignified and important it is um, and how much of a gift it is to be alive. Very nice. And speaking of the gift of being alive, today is Andrea's 30th Yay, birthday. Yay, Andrea's 30th so birthday. So we could sing her Tanto Aguri. No, we'll spare everybody. Tanti Aguri. <laughs> That's as much as I remember. Um, and so, yeah, we're very uh, happy to give you the Yay. Uh, solemn high shout-out today of uh, your 30th birthday. Last week was Father Christopher's 35th old man Lubsock yeah, here. Yeah. Next week is uh, baby Mike Rapp's 33rd? Are we 33 this year? Good. Lots Night. of old man strength and wisdom. That's right. So, Andrea, right. do you have a shout-out you want to give here More before we wrap it up? Um, I have to give my one shout-out to my brother, Peter who is a faithful listener um, and actually was the first person to wish me a happy birthday through a video this that I received this morning. So, Peter, Elizabeth, Rocco, Maggie, I love you guys. Nice. Very sweet, Peter. Father, I think Chris Father Christopher Lebson. I got a shout out to my new second semester Christendom College class. None of them listen to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> So shout out to you guys. Hope you're listening. We don't give shout outs to people who don't listen. No, I'm just joking. Um, well, some other friends of yours, Father Chris, uh, Shane and uh, Mara Vandis from this morning's Mass at St. Peter's. Great to have you with us at the Clementine Chapel um, out in Rome here. And uh, so that's great to have them. And then we got a, a request from, um, we got here, Caitlin Berger. Uh, says, hey, Father, it's my fiance's birthday is March 15th, and he's a big fan of the podcast. Could you give him a shout out? His name's Corey Gendron. So, Corey, thanks for listening, and uh, happy birthday next week, almost the same day as yours. All right. You got anything there, Miguel, before we go? Um, Grandma Mary's birthday's next week. I uh, also <laughs> want to shout out the, uh, the guys who were ordained deacons for Denver. I can't remember if we shouted them out yet. I don't think we did. But. Yeah. Uh, if you guys are listening, we're really proud of you, and congratulations. Congratulations. I think five five or six, six of them. Thank you. Six of them. So that's that. We are sh just sliding under 39 minutes here. So Father Nathan Goble.
cannot say that we extended over 40, which he has been uh, busting us about. So great to have you guys with us. Uh, great, yeah, thanks, great dealing, a treatment of a, of a difficult but a very important topic. So um, any emails, uh, send our way, and we'll forward them on to the experts here. But uh, we appreciate you listening. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Cue that banjo. And we'll see you next week.